Hear now the word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Everyone loves the story of an underdog, especially in sports. I think one of the most thrilling things, unless you happen to be cheering for the Goliath, uh, is to watch a David take down a Goliath. We love stories that, that on the surface, on paper, should not happen. They are implausible. They are improbable. And yet to watch them unfold and happen is a remarkable thing to see. Uh, you think, for example, in 1980, when the United States hockey team took down a Goliath, took down the Soviet Union, uh, or in 1994 when the Nebraska Cornhuskers, after they had been humiliated several times by the Miami Hurricanes in the years previous, they won. They won that national championship. Or in 2007 when Boise State stunned Oklahoma in the Fiesta Bowl. Now, not only do we enjoy sports, uh, but sometimes we enjoy going back to some of these improbable, implausible victories to say, how did this happen? It shouldn't have happened on paper. How did it happen? Well, in the, the case of the United States hockey game in 1980 called The Miracle on Ice, I don't know anything about hockey, but there's an excellent article on the ESPN website that really attributes the victory there uh, down to an innovative defensive strategy that disrupted the, the fast-break offense of the Soviet Unions, as well as an individual performance, the game of a lifetime by U.S. goalie Jim Craig. So strategy, tactics, as well as individual performance. For the Nebraska Cornhuskers, they had been humiliated because of the team speed of Miami and over the previous years, and so they had increased their team speed, and they also relied that year on a power running game that wore down the hurricane defense. And if you watch that 2007 Fiesta Bowl, you know how that one was won. And Boise State used every trick play in the book, the hook and lateral, they used the, the Statue of Liberty, but they got the job done at the end of the day. If you go back, it's fun to look at what caused improbable, implausible victories to happen. But what if we can't find a reason? What if you look at a victory, a stunning victory, and as you comb through it, you realize there is no way this should have happened? It's not just improbable. It's not just implausible. This is outright impossible, humanly speaking. No strategy can explain it. No individual performance can explain it. No speed, no strength, no trickery can explain how this came to be. And this is the kind of victory that Jesus is talking about in the growth of the kingdom of heaven. At the end of time, when we look at the way that the kingdom of heaven has grown within this world, again, there will be no human explanation that will be able to account 
for the final victory that Jesus insists the kingdom of heaven will take place, will gain. So how does this come to pass? Well, Jesus tells us in this parable, in these two parables, that the kingdom of heaven will come by surprise. That's our big idea for today, that the kingdom of heaven will come by surprise. So we'll look at this section in three parts. First, small beginning with the parable of the mustard seeds, small beginning. Second, secret development in the parable of the leaven. And then third, surprise ending in verses 34 through 35, when Matthew tells us how this fulfills Psalm 78. So let's look first at the parable of the mustard seed in verses 31 through 32. Again, Jesus is talking about a small beginning for the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, we have already looked at two parables. First of all, the parable of the sower earlier in chapter 13. And, and that parable, the parable of the sower or the parable of the four soils, talked about why the gospel will produce such different results for different kinds of people. Uh, symbolized by different kinds of soils, the hard soil, the thorny soil, the rocky soil, as well as the good soil. Then we saw the parable of the weeds. And in the parable of the weeds, Jesus spoke about why evil will remain in this world if the kingdom has indeed come. Why does evil remain if the kingdom has already come? And Jesus talked about it in the parable of the weeds. It's not that evil will be here forever. Rather, Jesus is letting the kingdom grow to completion, and only then will a final separation be made between His people, the sons of the kingdom, and the sons of the enemy, who will be cast off into outer darkness forever. Well, now we come to these two parables, and these hang together. The parables of the mustard seed and the leaven are explicitly, deliberately told together. And these two parables from different angles are getting at this question. What can we expect from the kingdom. Given what we know in these different areas, what can we expect from the kingdom? Well, in this first parable, in verses 31 through 32, we read that the kingdom of heaven is going to come by surprise because of its very small beginning. It's going to begin in a very small way. Jesus says in verse 31, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, some people, you, you may have heard a sermon on this before, some people point out, well, the, the mustard seed is not actually the smallest of all possible seeds. What's going on here? Well, understand a couple of things. First of all, in the ancient world, not only in this culture, but in, in many ancient cultures, the mustard seed was regularly, it was proverbially talked about as the smallest of the seeds. Jesus is in some ways picking up on that, but there's something else happening, namely that Jesus is exaggerating for effect. That doesn't mean He's lying about botanical processes. What Jesus is doing is He is exaggerating the smallness of the seed as well as the large growth of this tree, so it becomes larger than all the plants of the garden. He's exaggerating the small beginning and the large end in order to show the supernatural spiritual nature of this growth. So in other words, you don't have a natural process that really truly will explain the impossible victory of the kingdom of heaven in this world. And so Jesus is taking a natural process from a very small seed, the mustard seed, to a very large tree, although not the largest tree in the world, and he's exaggerating for effect to show what a remarkable thing the victory of the kingdom of heaven in this world 
will be. But setting that issue aside, what we really should be focusing on is the exact imagery that Jesus is using, that of a tree where birds find nest in that tree's branches. Now, that may not sound like much, but if we are familiar with our Old Testaments, we know that this is kingdom language. This is Old Testament empire language. Three times in the Old Testament, we find this exact description given to describe a particular kingdom. So, in Ezekiel 31, verses 3 through 9, God describes the empire of Assyria as a cedar in Lebanon. And what do we find out about this cedar? The birds of the air nested in its branches. That's Ezekiel 31, verses 3 through 9. Then in Daniel 4, verses 10 through 12, Babylonian's king Nebuchadnezzar uh, has a dream, and in this dream he sees Babylon, the empire, depicted as a great tree. And again, the birds of the heavens lived in those branches. The idea behind this is that these empires, these great kingdoms are growing out and stretching their branches out into the world so that wherever they stretch their branches, the birds of the air, that is, the peoples living in those areas, will come and find nest and shade and life in those branches that have reached into their areas, into their countries. But here's, what's happen, here's what happens in both of those stories, in both of those prophetic visions. In both Assyria's tree and Babylon's tree, in both of them you find that they are judged, that these trees get so large they become pride and pr- uh, proud and prideful, and the decree is given to cut these trees down. They're destroyed. They're uh, toppled over. They're left for dead for the other nations of the earth to trample on them. But there is another place where this image shows up, and it's Ezekiel 17, verses 22 through 24. Ezekiel 17, where God promises that He is going to establish His own kingdom. And He's going to establish this kingdom by taking a twig, a sprig of a tree, the smallest part of a tree, and He's going to plant it into the earth, and this tree is going to grow large enough so that every kind of bird will rest in its branches. And here's what God says in Ezekiel 17, verse 24, I bring low the high tree, that's what happened to Assyria and to Babylon, and I make high the low tree. Do you see how there's that surprise ending? What starts small with a twig, a sprig, grows into the largest tree where, again, all the birds of the air can find rest in its branches. Again, when Jesus gives this parable, I used this phrase last week. This is not a folksy fable about a farmer. This is telling us about the eternal kingdom of God's Messiah, that it's going to start in very small, very unassuming ways, in ways that you would never expect it to become anything in this world, with a twig, a sprig, a a mustard seed. But then, even despite its small beginning, this tree will grow up to be a very large and mature tree, and then third, This kingdom, this tree will be such a blessing to all the nations of the earth that the birds of the air or every kind of bird will find rest in its branches. What this parable is doing is to describe the outward, visible growth of the kingdom of heaven in this world. The kingdom of heaven is a spiritual kingdom to be sure, but it has a visible manifestation, and this visible manifestation is going to spread out throughout the entire world. 
This is a description of the multiplication of churches, of the growth of uh, numbers of professing believers along with their children throughout every tribe, language, people, and nation. Those are the birds in the branches. And this surprising, implausible, improbable, in fact, even impossible spread of the kingdom will not be attributable to tactics or individual good efforts, not strength, not speed, not trickery. We won't be able to attribute a human cause to this growth. All of it will be to the praise and glory of God. About 15 years ago, there was a book published. Um, I know some of you have read it. In fact, a session read this early on when uh, I came to Harvest. Uh, it's a book called The Trellis and the Vine. The Trellis and the Vine. Um, you, may, you probably know what a vine is, but a trellis, if you're not familiar, is that uh, wooden structure uh, that you build up, and, and, and vines need that to, to grow up on top of the structure. My parents, uh, they grow grape vines, and you can't just let these things lie on the ground. That's not how grape vines grow. Um, in order to grow the grapes to produce excellent grape jelly, they have to give some structure for that vine to grow up on top of it. It's right in their backyard. Well, the basic idea of this book, talking about both a trellis and a vine, is uh, the two authors were talking about the nature of life in the church. That in the church, you need a trellis. You need some kind of structure. You need systems. You need plans. You need projects that's supposed to help the vine grow. The vine, of course, referring to the people, uh, the organic spiritual growth of people. And you need some structure, but really, the work of the church is to focus on the vine, on the people. As elders, our job is not to make the structural edifice of the church increasingly prettier or more elaborate or more complicated. We're called to look at everyone in this church and try to figure out how we get every individual person, wherever you may be today, to take that next step in faith and obedience following after Jesus. And so this book is a lot about thinking about the vine growth. He says it's easy to do the structural work. It's not so easy to think about the vine growth, vine work. What's interesting about this parable, and they're not quite talking about the same thing, but if you think about that sort of dynamic, about the structure, you see that in this tree there is structure. Again, these branches are structural ways in which the birds of the air can find rest in its branches. This is the outreach of the visible church into the world. But how does this structure grow? Well, what Jesus says is it is not that a trellis grows up from a mustard seed. It's not that the kingdom of heaven is going to be built by an elaborate construction process where we build some artificial tree that reaches into the rest of the world. What Jesus talks about here is combining those two categories. He says there's going to be structure and there's going to be growth. This, and those two things go together. The structure grows up as the tree and its branches grow out and stretch into the entire world. So there is a process of organic growth here by which the visible kingdom of Jesus Christ through the church is going to spread into the entire world, which raises the question, how then does the vine grow? How then does this tree grow? And if you look at the rest of Scripture, you always see God talking about Himself as the one who gives the growth. He's the one who's planted the vineyard, who's watching over it to help it to grow. 
Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. My Father is the vine dresser. We will not build the kingdom by our own ingenuity, by our projects, by our systems. At the end of the day, God is the one who gives the growth. How then does this happen? Well, this is what Jesus is answering in the second parable that goes together, that hangs with this. The second parable in verse 33, the parable of the leaven, here we see secret development, the secret development of the kingdom. Look at verse 33. He, Jesus, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So leaven, what is that? It's, it's like yeast. It's not yeast. It's like yeast. Um, it, it is a way to, to give uh, growth to dough. Um, if you've had sour bread dough, that's made with leaven, not yeast, but leaven. And the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, the key word in this parable is the word hid. This woman hid leaven in this flour. Now, that's very important. You could describe the way that you knead leaven into dough in a lot of different ways. But Jesus particularly uses a very loaded, very charged word in the Gospel of Matthew, the word hid. Hid. What Jesus tells us throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that the kingdom of heaven is something that is hidden. So in Matthew 11, verse 25, Jesus told us that the kingdom is hidden from the wise and intelligent. Earlier in this chapter, in Matthew 13, verse 11, he said that the gospel is a mystery that is given to the disciples, but it's not given to those outside. Then later in this chapter, in chapter 13, verse 44, we read that the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, where when someone discovers the treasure, they sell everything in order to buy the field and the treasure in the field. The hidden kingdom is worth selling everything to possess. So the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is telling us everywhere it is hidden. And here Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a woman who hides this leaven in a measure of flour, three measures of flour. Now there's a surprise here, like the surprise of the mustard seed, but it's different. With the surprise of the mustard seed, the surprise was that what started with a very small beginning will eventually grow into a very large, mature end result. The surprise of the leaven here is the way the leaven works its hidden power invisibly on the dough. When you end up with a large tree, you see it. When you end up with dough in, or, or leaven in dough, you see the dough, but you don't see the leaven. The leaven is working its hidden secret influence on the dough as you see the dough growing and expanding. But you can't see the leaven for itself. It is hidden. It's invisible within the dough. Now, it's also very important that we might read over, we're not here for a cooking recipe, but we should notice the instructions that Jesus is giving to bake this kingdom, that this woman took and hid this leaven in three measures of flour. The word measure here is the word that you might um, accompany or encounter in the Old Testament as seahs. Now, I'm sure you're keeping great track of all the measurements in the Bible, uh, three seahs, equal one ephah, if that helps you uh, when you're thinking about the amount of flour this is describing. Uh, one commentator says this is a huge amount of bread. This could feed possibly 150 people. 
So you're not talking about an afternoon Saturday where you'd like to bake a loaf of bread for your family. You're talking about feeding an army. Now, what's remarkable about this amount of dough is that there are three times in the Old Testament where exactly this amount of dough is made. And each time was accompanied by a visitation of the Lord. So in Genesis 18, verse 6, Abraham, dozing in the day, and lifts his eyes up and behold, three visitors have come to his doorstep. Yahweh has come into his midst. And he goes and tells his wife, Sarah, hurry and prepare three seahs of flour. There's three people, and he, they prepare enough food for 150 people for this great feast. What have these three visitors come to tell them? Well, partially that the Lord is about to visit and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah in judgment for the wickedness there, but partially in order to announce that the time they return next time that year, Abraham and Sarah will have a baby, a baby of their own, Isaac. It's a visitation of the Lord. In Judges chapter 6, verse 19, when Gideon is, is working with the different fleeces that he's putting out, trying to see whether the fleece is wet or whether the grass is wet in the morning, trying to determine whether he truly is called to lead the people of Israel in battle against their enemies. Well, as Gideon is dialoguing with the angel of the Lord, he makes one ephah of flour as a feast to celebrate with this angel of the Lord, the Lord Himself who has visited His people. And then finally, in 1 Samuel 1, verse 24, a woman named Hannah who has no children, after she prays to the Lord and the Lord gives her a son, Samuel, when she dedicates Samuel to the Lord, part of the dedication offering is three seahs of flour. And in the next chapter, we read in 1 Samuel 2, verse 21, that the Lord visited her after all this, and she had five more children. That first son, however, Samuel, would be the great prophet who would anoint the first two kings of Israel, Saul and then especially King David. In all of these stories, three seahs of flour, three measures of flour, one ephah of flour is a sign that the Lord is up to something important and the people of God are, are brought into a, a feast as they celebrate what the Lord is about to do in the salvation of His kingdom. Jesus is telling this parable then to tell us that not only will the kingdom grow in a visible, external way, but that the principle of its life will be secret. It will be invisible. It will be hidden. We are not as a church trying to grow in buildings, bodies, and bucks. We are trying to see spiritual growth ultimately. Now, we want to see the growth of the visible church. The growth of the visible church is related to the growth of the invisible church, the spiritual nature of the church, but you cannot confuse the two. You cannot conflate the two. And what Jesus is saying is the true power of the kingdom will come as to the preaching of the gospel. Jesus Himself, by His Spirit, will invisibly need the power of the kingdom of heaven into the souls of His people in the church. Amen. The classic illustration that Jesus gives elsewhere is in John chapter 3 when He talks about the work of the Holy Spirit as the wind. Now, in part, Jesus is making a play on words uh, because in both the Hebrew language of the Old Testament and the Greek language of the New Testament, the word for wind is the same word as the word for spirit. 
And so Jesus is saying that the Spirit is like the wind, and you kind of have to know from context what he's talking about, and Jesus deliberately is using the word in both senses there. But what he's also saying is that when you think about the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit is always invisible. You can never see the Holy Spirit at work, but you can see the effects of the Holy Spirit. This week, um, I saw a video of a tornado that passed very close to my childhood home. It passed through Kimball, Nebraska on the, the west side of the state. And I saw some man with someone else in the car who wanted to get as close to this thing as possible. And the passenger, you can hear pleading, we're getting too close, we're going to run into it. And the guy who's driving is, it's fine, it's fine. And you're thinking, I'm so thankful I'm not in that. Um, And you can see the gorilla hail, giant softball-sized chunks of hail crashing into the windshield as you see this tornado picking up steam. Here's the thing, you you do not see the wind in this tornado. But you see all the dust and all the carnage of the wind as this tornado is passing through it. And they get way closer to that than I would ever be comfortable in seeing. But this is what the Spirit of God is like as He works. You do not see Him any more than you see the leaven that is hidden in this dough. You do not see Him any more than you see the wind. And yet He is the spiritual principle of life in the church. If you take away this spirit and we continued all of our other programs, all of our other meetings, all of our other gatherings, we would have nothing apart from him. Well, what Jesus does in the final section of this passage, and really Matthew has explained to us what Jesus is meaning by this, is he's trying to connect this, showing us how the visible and the invisible growth of the kingdom is not only something that is happening, but it is the main feature of human history. It is God's relentless purpose as He brings His story to completion in the history of the world. And this is where we find the third point, surprise ending in verses 34 through 35. We read in verse 34, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, He said nothing to them without a parable. Now, earlier on in chapter 13, remember Jesus said in verse uh, 11, to you, the disciples, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Part of the reason that Jesus is speaking the secrets of the kingdom in parables is in part to unfold those secrets to His disciples, but partially to keep those secrets hidden from those who do not look to Jesus by faith. You cannot understand these, the secrets of these parables apart from faith. But then in verse 35, Matthew says something remarkable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Now, you might be thinking, what prophet? Is this Isaiah, Jeremiah? No, the prophet is Asaph, the author of Psalm 78, where Psalm 78 verse 2, Asaph writes, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Now, Psalm 78 is a remarkable psalm. It's a long psalm, um, but it's a very remarkable psalm because what Asaph is doing in that psalm is to trace the history of Israel. And so at one point, he'll be talking about a a remarkable act of redemption that God did in the midst of his people Israel. And then another point, he'll turn around and he'll talk about the great sin of Israel that caused great calamity in the nation. And you don't know where he's going, except he's generally tracing the outline of history, going here, going there, talking about this, talking about that. It all seems discombobulated. It all seems disorganized until he comes to the end. 
And he says, this wasn't just a, a random organization of facts. The history of God's people was always, as winding as it may have seemed, was always driving directly in a straight line to one place. And do you know where the psalm ends? With David on the throne. At the end of Psalm 78, Asaph said, all of this is leading to the establishment of the kingdom of David over his people Israel, a shepherd over his people Israel. David's reign then was not a surprising afterthought. It was a predetermined conclusion that provides a far better ending to the story than anyone had thought possible up to that point. But that was always the purpose. Now, in the context of the Gospel of Matthew, this is extremely important because from the beginning, Matthew has been telling us at every turn, this Jesus is the son of David. That's the very first verse of the Gospel. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. If you want to know who he is, this is the one who is the rightful heir to the throne of David. What was accomplished in part in the Old Testament through the establishment of the kingdom of David is established in its perfection as Jesus, the rightful heir to the throne of David, sits on the throne of David. When Jesus is telling these stories, He is not telling folksy fables about farmers. He is telling about how the Messiah, how He Himself, the Son of Man, will establish His kingdom on this earth. Well, what then are we to do with this as we respond to this? Well, what Jesus is driving at and why He says that you cannot understand this apart from faith the first thing Jesus calls us to is faith. Believe the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' kingdom did not come into this world with great pomp and circumstance. It did not come into this world as He was heralded as the King by all the nations of the earth. Jesus' kingdom began like a mustard seed. It began with Christ's humiliation, beginning with the fact that the Lord of glory took upon Himself a human nature. That was a great step down for the Son of God to take upon Himself our limited human nature, to be born into this world, to live, to be hated and rejected by His people, ultimately to be crucified, nails driven through His hands and feet, a spear piercing His side, so that He died a miserable, shameful, cursed death on a cross, and that He was buried where death held a grip on Him for three days. What good could possibly come from such shame? And what fools would follow a man who was cursed as he was hanged on a tree? But what the rest of the New Testament tells us is that while the cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, to Greeks, Christ crucified is nevertheless the power of God and the wisdom of God for salvation. He is glorious, yet, and yet His glory is invisible to the world. But that glory is worked out in His people. We are given eyes to behold the glory of Christ crucified through God's Word and by His Spirit. At the end of the day, the gospel of the kingdom is infinitely good news to rebellious guilty, unclean sinners like you and me. Though you are a rebel 
guilty of treason, though you are a miserable, shame-ridden sinner because of your iniquity. Nevertheless, God's only Son took upon a human nature so that He could suffer and die for you. Through faith in Christ, God forgives, He cleanses, and He reconciles sinners into His own family as His own dear children. Do you know Jesus this morning? Have you been forgiven? Have you been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, adopted as heirs of God through Christ Jesus? This all is given through faith. This kingdom that is growing is yours in Jesus by faith. He who has ears, let him hear. The second application then is that we are called to obey King Jesus' instructions as He builds His kingdom in this world. We do not build the kingdom. God hasn't given us blueprints and say, just build that and everything will be just fine. Jesus builds His kingdom. But as Jesus builds His kingdom, He calls us as His servants to serve in various ways that He uses through which He works to establish his kingdom. He doesn't need us. He graciously uses us as He builds His kingdom. So how does He build His kingdom? First, through the growth and expansion of the visible church. In other words, the growth and expansion of the kingdom requires planting more churches in this world. I had a pastor in seminary at Faith Presbyterian in Birmingham, Alabama, who loved to call that church an outpost of the kingdom on Valleydale Road. I love that. It's such a wonderful explanation of what the church is. We are a, an outpost of the kingdom on Cumming Street. Jesus builds His kingdom by establishing outposts, embassies of the kingdom, uh, where the citizenship of the kingdom begins to take sway through visible churches. And when churches are planted, it starts out with such a small, despised beginning, just a, a few people with a mission to build another outpost for the kingdom, another altar to witness to the gospel of kingdom in a new neighborhood or in a new town altogether. But as that grows, it grows as a branch of the larger tree, the one olive tree of Jesus Christ's organic kingdom growing out into the world. It becomes one more branch on which the birds of that area can find rest in its branches. By God's grace, we're seeking right now at Harvest to, to plant another church. This isn't something that there's just sort of a, a predetermined list of, of instructions that if you just go through all the steps and you check off all the boxes, you come out, voila, you just put it in your easy-bake oven and out pops a church. That's not the way this works. And frankly, it will not be attributable to our strategies, to any individual Herculean performance, to speed, to strength, to trickery. None of those ways will build a new church in this world. The growth will belong from first to last to God. Yet He calls us to establish new outposts, to plant new churches where Christ's name can be proclaimed and placarded high for people of that area to see, and we'd invite you to think and pray, is God leading you on that adventure? Uh, you may not know, but the Columbia team was delayed. Uh, they were delayed. Um, they were supposed to leave on Thursday. Their first flight was delayed by three hours. 
Then yesterday, as they were, uh, so they got rescheduled to yesterday, to Saturday, and as they were flying, their last flight, the last leg, just a one hour from, from Panama City to Barranquilla, this was delayed, and, and they were not able to make that flight until this morning. Well, I was, I was texting with Pastor Andrew, and, and I was thinking, this is terrible. This is miserable. I'm thankful when I went, it didn't go that badly. And he said, what an adventure. What, what an adventure. That is a wonderful way to look at the way God's kingdom grows in this world. Wherever He takes us, whatever suffering He might lead us through, what an adventure we're called on. Because from first to last, this will not be attributable to our praise and to glory, but to God. So that at harvest, as we continue to gather here, and as whatever new church gets planted by God's grace in another area, What's going to happen is King Jesus, through His Word, will continue to leaven, to, to knead in leaven and to the lump of dough of His people. This is like nothing the world understands, nothing the world can see or participate in, but Jesus opens His mouth in these parables so that we may come out of this world through faith in Jesus, to be transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be involved in what God has uttered from the foundation of the world that has been kept hidden until now. And this Jesus unfolding not only through what He has come into the world to do, but through His church by which He will build His kingdom. And as Jesus promises, the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that the church of Jesus Christ will not be defeated. On paper, the weakest, most foolish, ragtag group of people imaginable, those that were not, you have called to be something through Jesus Christ. What an adventure. And we pray that you would give us grace to embrace the particular roles that we are called, that you would help us to walk through whatever valley of the shadow of death may arise, knowing that you are with us, that your rod and your staff will comfort us, and knowing that through all of it, the victory is never in question, because Jesus Christ has already won it through His life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And so all glory will one day go to Him, resulting in your praise, Father. We pray that you would wrap all of this up. We pray that Jesus Christ would come quickly. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.